Well, how good it is, church, to close out this last day of this year uh, by spending it together this last Lord's Day, considering His Word as we gather together as His people. And so, would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Philippians, this uh, final Sunday morning of the year of a brief meditation and exhortation, more or less, from Philippians 3, verse 12 through uh, 16. Next week, we will return to our studies through the book of Exodus. And just a a reminder, on the table in the lobby there, you'll see these half sheets that um, mark out where we're going, some upcoming sermons through March. Um, Encourage you to grab one of those so that through your week, and particularly Sunday or Saturday evenings, you're mindful of where we're going to be considering um, God's Word together as His church. Uh, read over that. And on the back side there, you'll see a number of the catechism questions um, that specifically have to do with some of the themes that we'll be considering in the upcoming weeks as we enter into Exodus chapter 20. But this morning, we turn to the epistle to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. We'll focus in beginning on verse 12, but for a bit of context, would you follow along with me beginning in verse 1? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Would you pray with me? Father, how greatly we need to hear and to have it applied to our souls by your Spirit, the grace that comes to us in your Son. 
Father, as we gather your, as your church this morning, we plead and we ask that by the ministry of the Word and by the ministry of your Spirit, you would cause these truths to not only be clear to our minds, but by your work, they would illuminate our souls, that they would change our affections, that they would grant us renewed faith, hope, and love. The Father, the things that you have given to us in your Son and the good work that you are bringing forth in our lives and the completion of that work that we shall all obtain by your grace and your favor to us in Christ. Lord, may those things become so clear to us this morning as your dear ones. Father, we pray that you would help all of us who are here this morning to hear by faith. And Lord, where faith does not exist, would you be so kind to grant it? Would you give sight to those of us who cannot see? Would you grant us the ability to hear to those who do not yet hear? Father, would you help us where we are weak in faith? Would you help us where we are struggling or doubting, even weary? Lord, help us. These very images that are given to us by the Apostle Paul and considering running and laboring and pressing forward, would you cause the grandness and the glory of what has been given to us in Christ to be that great motivation to lift our heads, to look to you knowing that you are our shield and our great reward, the one that will receive us gladly and that we will rejoice in in one day soon. Father, take your word and cause it to bear much fruit in our lives for your sake, we pray. Amen. Well, as we read our Bible and as we live out our Christian life, we eventually discover this repeated theme, this repeated reality that runs not only throughout the New Testament, but experientially in our lives that can be described simply as already, not yet. It is this theme and this experience that we bump up into, and we might scratch our heads a few times trying to figure out how the pieces fit together, but it is most certainly a major portion of understanding our New Testament and a necessity to make sense of our lives as God's people. There's a sort of tension that pulls on the Christian as we recognize that we already have everything in Christ. And yet, experientially, not yet. We see this here in the pages even of Paul's own writing. In chapter 2, verse 5, he tells these Philippian believers they have the mind of Christ. And then he goes on in a few verses later to tell them to work out their own salvation. He says in chapter 3, verse 9, that he has the very righteousness of God. And then, a few verses later in verse 12, he says that he is not yet perfect. Paul is the one who's been laid hold of by Christ, but freely admits he has not yet laid hold of Christ. Paul's received the upward call of God, but he's not obtained the end of that call. So how do we, as God's people, live in light of this tension, live in light of this reality? How do we live as those who are new creatures in Christ, yet not fully conformed to his image? How do we live out Paul's great ambition that we just read in verse 8? This great ambition to count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. How do we live out that tension of knowing that he truly is of great worth, 
but seeing within our own souls that we are so easily and so often lured away, allured, by things that appear to be of great worth but are really not. In order to answer these questions, Paul turns our attention to an image. He has an image in his mind, and he's seeking to portray that image in means of inspired truth. It's the image of a Greek runner. And it's a fitting picture that helps us better understand, really, the posture that the Christian ought to have in this life as we seek to move forward in this already and not yet reality. The posture of the Christian life is to be one of continual progress. He's going to say it's going to be one of clear aim and one that includes a certain agreement. That's more or less the direction we're heading this morning. A continual progress, a clear aim, and a certain agreement. How do we understand this tension? Consider what Philippians 3 has to say to us. First of all, that the Christian life is to be one of continual progress. Look back at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, lest the Philippian believers jump to any wrong conclusions, get the wrong idea, Paul is quick to point out that the zeal that he has, the zeal that he's just unpacked in the first eight or ten verses of Philippians 3, lest any Philippian believer jump to the wrong conclusion, Paul is quick to point them to the reality of knowing, just because I know the surpassing worth of Christ, don't wrongly assume it's something that I have fully obtained and laid hold of. He's been apprehended by Christ, he says. He's secure in him. He belongs to him. But experientially, Paul says, I have not yet fully laid hold of Christ. He wants them to know that being perfected like him in his death is not something he's yet fully arrived at. And so he says, I press on to make this my own. Now, as Christians there is something that has happened to us in a particular moment where we, for the first time, felt in a completely different way the guilt of our sin. We felt in a particular moment the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings, our need for a deliverer, that God grants us faith and we placed our trust in Christ. Every Christian at some particular moment has that experience. And it's wonderful And as necessary as that experience of conversion is, conversion is not the totality of the Christian experience. The Christian life is one of progress. And this is the experience of every believer in all times. I must know more of God. I must press forward to know more of Him. That is what Paul is expressing here. This is the very desire of the saints of old. We hear this throughout our scriptures. The sons of Korah in Psalm 42. That psalm looks to a very common scene in nature. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? 
you can, you can sense, almost feel the, the weight and the longing of the psalmist for their thirst for God. We hear it in David as well, Psalm 27. One thing that I've asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. One thing I have asked, just to dwell and to be with my God. We hear something or see something of this in Mary, the sister of Martha, in that account in Luke 10, we're told that she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. That there was much going on around her, but Mary chose this better portion to just sit. I must hear. I must receive. It's that same idea that Paul is getting at here in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Friend, the cry of the Christian life is for more. They have tasted, they've seen, and they long for more of Christ. Better clarity, stronger affections for Him. They say, I must press on. I fear that we have been greatly duped by revivalistic and emotionally manipulative evangelism if we've begun to think that Christianity is simply a decision to agree with or knowledge or information about God that you just mentally assent to, and that is it. That is not the Christianity of the Bible. Certainly, knowledge of God and of His ways are necessary for salvation, but it is not the summation of what it means to be a Christian. I can know certain facts about my wife. I can observe certain aspects of her personality or being, even memorize certain facts about her. But it doesn't mean that I cherish her or love her or delight in her as a husband ought. And friends, we cannot be content or be at peace with a version of Christianity that just simply checks certain boxes about God, man, and Christ certain knowledge and facts that we've picked up along the way and put that into a heap and say, that is Christianity because I know certain things and leave it at that bare knowledge alone. Because the reality of the Christian life is that that knowledge of those things that comes to us by the living Word of God presses us forward and we with the psalmist say, I must have more. I press on. I must make continual progress in this because a genuine knowledge about Jesus, it ought to lead to genuine affection for Jesus. The all-important question is why? Is it just guilt? Like, you, you ought to love Jesus more than you do. Is it just mere pride? Like, how could you not love Jesus more than you do? What is the motivation for this continual progress? Paul doesn't leave us in the dark. He answers the all-important question of why. Paul, why do you insist that you must press on? Answer, because Christ Jesus made me his own. The motivation for continual progress, the reason that the saints of God say, I must know him, is because he's made me his own. 
This could also be translated as laid a hold of or grasp. It literally means to overtake someone by a pursuit. Christ Jesus has overtaken me in his pursuit of me. Do you think of your salvation in this way? The assertive, definitive action of God. Paul's conversion was certainly dramatic, in visible form. A voice from heaven, a blinding light, being knocked off his animal down to the ground. Most certainly dramatic in its form, but Christians, ours is no less dramatic in its substance. You might not have the same details of the Apostle Paul and how God laid a hold of you, but the substance of what God does in converting a sinner is no less dramatic. We've been chosen before the foundation of the world. We've been elected by God himself. His light has shone into our hearts. We've been brought out of death into life, out of darkness, into his marvelous life. So we are those who say with all certainty, we were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but God, being rich in mercy and love, made us alive together with Christ. Beloved, we run the race that is set before us because of the certainty of God's apprehension of us. We're not running ahead hoping that he'll receive us. We run forward joyfully knowing we're already his. He's laid hold of me. And so now with every fiber, every tissue, every ounce of energy, I strive to lay hold of him. Let me say it as plainly as I can. If you're satisfied with your Christian life, I don't understand your definition of Christianity. Because every Christian, this side of glory, ought to be able to say, I've yet to obtain what I want. I've yet to lay hold of fully what I long for. I'm not yet what Christ has called me to be. I press on because Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. And if you're not a Christian... Maybe you've wondered why your Christian friends or even your Christian family does what they do. And at some points, maybe you've scratched your head and said, they are, I love them, but a bit odd. As you've wondered why they keep to this practice of diligently reading this book, that they talk so freely and so often about spiritual things that they have this unexplainable love for this, to gather with God's people. It just sounds strange. Well, the reason for this has everything to do with what God has done for sinners, that God makes us his own. And while the guilt of sin and the bondage of sin ought to leave us ashamed and condemned, God provides forgiveness and mercy through the death of Christ. 
And those who have experienced this, those who've repented of sin and put their trust in Christ because God, by his grace, has opened their eyes to see the reality of who he is and who they are, they start to do very strange things according to the natural man. They start to love their Bibles. They love to talk about spiritual things. Anytime they get in the conversation, even slightly starts to move that way, they run through the front door and say, let me tell you what I've been reading. I, I, I got this book for Christmas, and it so helped me in this one particular doctrine, and I love meditating upon this. They anticipate gathering with God's people. You see, all of these things that look strange suddenly become quite reasonable once you've tasted of this grace. It's almost as if it was our reasonable act of service to give our lives to this great king. The Christian life is one of continual progress. But secondly, Paul says, this Christian life also has a clear aim. Look back at verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The language and the image here is unmistakable. Paul has in his mind the experience of a race. Specifically, a Greek runner. Now, as a spectator, you would observe a race like this, and you would know, as you see the runners line up upon the track, that these runners have come to do one thing, to run. They're not just meandering about. They're not just happen to be down on the track at this particular moment. They are there for this very specific reason, and that is to run. In fact, if someone was sitting next to you who'd never been to any one of these games, all they would have to do is watch, and it would become so clear to them in a matter of seconds that, ah, what I am seeing here is a matter of someone who's come to do one thing. They've come to run. One thing I do, Paul says. Now, In order to do that one thing, a few things are involved. You notice what Paul does there? He says, this one thing I do, and then there's a couple of commas and semicolons that follow after that. But if we think about it, there's several experiences in life that are like this. When you turn the key in your car's ignition, you want one thing to happen. You want it to start. But really, in order for that one objective, assuming it's not run by batteries, but a real car, several things have to happen. There has to be air and fuel and spark for that one thing, combustion, to happen. (laughs) One thing I do, and then Paul lists a few things. The Christian is one who has a clear aim, running a race that is before him, and in doing so, what does he do? He says, first of all, he's forgetting what lies behind. 
the runner doesn't look back because he knows that if he does, he'll lose speed, possibly even direction, and possibly even the race itself by this temptation to look behind him. Looking back while running is not only unhelpful, friends, it can also be dangerous. This is a good reminder for us all because some are prone to pride. And so we look back, resting upon our spiritual progress, basking in the glow of our ongoing victory. And slowly that spiritual pride creeps in as we ruminate on how long it's been since we were actually tempted in that menial sin that used to dominate us. How could I have been so foolish? Look at me now. Look how consistently this past year I've read my Bible, journaled a bit, listened to all of these helpful resources. My, how I've grown so much. Some of us are prone to despair, beating ourselves up incessantly over past sin, our lives prior to Christ our weak faith, the areas of our unsanctified faith, and we look back. Just as a runner must not continually be looking back, we must not be those who are fixated upon our past, but those who are fixated upon Christ. Look where you're going, Christian. Look who's called you. Look at who's laid hold of you. Look at who awaits you at the finish line. It's Christ himself, the servant king who has a a wounded side. He has nail-pierced hands, and he bears in his resurrected body the marks of his love for his people. He's defeated sin and death, and he's rescued you from hell. He's prepared a kingdom, and he calls you his beloved. That is where our eyes are fixed. That is not why we are looking behind, but because we are looking to the one to whom we are pressing on towards. And when I consider this pressing on towards Christ, I have no room for pride or wallowing around in misery or defeat over failure. This is precisely the word that many of us need to hold on to this morning. Stop looking back. Press forward. Look to the one to whom has called you. Having a clear aim, though, also includes our straining forward. That's the other thing that Paul says here. The verb in the original language is quite striking because it pictures a runner straining every muscle, every nerve as he reaches forward towards that finish line. Through the advantage of our modern technology and high-speed shutters and wonderfully developed cameras, have you seen those pictures? The, The sprinters running as they're about to cross the finish line specimens fit in physical form and nearly every ligament, fiber, and muscle straining forward for that finish line. That's the image that Paul has here. We are those who are straining forward. And so it must be spiritually. 
Who is the Christian? How do I find him? Oh, he's the one who's running. He's not looking back, he's pressing forward. And in that pressing forward, he is straining forward. Because within the life of the Christian, there is this observable practice. As he or she strains forward, there's this concerted effort to lean into all that is theirs in Christ as they press forward. You see these spiritual disciplines in their life of prayer and scripture reading, their love of gathering with the saints and surrounding themselves with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as we see the the runners straining for the finish line, it's clear to any observer, this is what they've come to do. Can the same be said of you? Could any observer of your life see the marked efforts to know Christ and to make him know. That's what Paul says I'm doing. This one thing that involves not looking back, but pressing forward. Forgetting what is behind, straining forward, and then thirdly, in this one thing, he says I'm pressing towards the goal. By goal, Paul is speaking about where the runner would fix his eyes. Because at the end of that track, as the Greek runners pursued, there was the podium. It was placed strategically at the end. So what you saw was not only the finish line, what you saw ultimately was the victor's crown. You saw the end. And so the runner, unflinching, locked in, fixed upon the pillar, would have stood at the end of the track. His clear aim is directed towards the goal of everything that he set out to do. And so too it must be spiritually. You see, for all of these marks, they are just the summation of a single focus. A person who's fixated upon the finality of it all. The upward call of God in Christ is the language of Paul. Just what is that call? What is the upward call of God in Christ? I think it must include the voice of God as he calls out to sinners. As we hear God's word, and it's proclaimed faithfully, and we hear the words repent, believe, that's the upward call of God in Christ that he promises to bring the restoration of all things, that he promises to be the one, the only one, who can forgive sins, the one who puts an end to all evil, all injustice, all oppression, all rebellion. It includes this call of God's plan to bring back sinners to himself. I think the upward call of God also includes the shout of warning and the shout of promise. We see that in Scripture as well. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a call to come out of darkness and come into the marvelous light. It's a call to trust in Christ alone and to follow after Him. It's the sort of call that declares murderers forgiven Adulterers made clean, rebels acquitted, and it does not 
flippantly or in any way diminish the wrongdoing in any way because this call announces that Christ himself bears the sin of his people, bears the guilt as a sacrifice of wrath. A person who's been apprehended by God, given a glimpse of the kingdom of righteousness, now lives life with this single focus, with one clear aim, I must know this life. The Christ gives. Is it any wonder that the psalmist so often takes up sensory language to describe what this experience is in knowing Christ? Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Christian, is your life dominated by the hope of heaven and the renewal of all things? Is this the aim of your life? And is it exposed as one who is convinced that the upward call of God is worth losing everything in order to gain what that call announces? How we need to hear the exhortation, Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The Christian life has a clear aim. How is your vision? Is it obscured by something or someone? Has it been obscured in such a way that this vision, though you know is true intellectually, experientially, you cannot honestly say, I see it, I pursue it, I press on. And as we approach this new year, how might you prioritize and order your life to reflect the priorities of Scripture? Certainly a good topic to consider over lunch with friends, a spouse, and those that you're spending time with this week. The Christian life is marked by a continual progress, a clear aim, and then lastly in verse 15, there's this certain agreement that we hold to. Certain agreement. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Now, lest anyone get the idea that the mature Christian has got it all nailed down, Paul says, true spiritual maturity is not perfection, but progress. Meaning, as he presses it even further, Paul says, look, I'm not alone in this conviction. Philippian church, I'm telling you these things. I'm exhorting you in this particular way, but I want you to understand I am not alone in this conviction. It's not as though the Apostle Paul has just picked up on something that is completely out of left field and he's written to you something that just sounds so foreign and so strange. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way in regards to pressing on a clear aim. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Here's what Paul is saying. 
He says, number one, those who are mature are going to agree with this. Meaning, the mark of Christian maturity is knowing that you have more ground to cover. In other words, a strong Christian is not boasting in his strength, but fixated upon Christ as his end goal. Secondly, those who are truly submitted to God and governed by his word, Paul says, you're going to see this. Paul recognized, look, okay, not everybody is going to see this at first glance, or as you hear this, Philippian Christian, in regards to the need to press on. But Paul also knows that God's sheep hear his voice. They know the voice of their shepherd. And even if a Christian does not fully grasp what Paul is saying here, he knows they will. Because God is going to be faithful to reveal that to him. Isn't that wonderful in the way Paul approaches these things? He, the apostle, knows this is true. The Holy Spirit has inspired him. He has written these things. He gives them to the Philippian church, and he says, look, even if you're not seeing it, to put it in different terms, as God's people, I don't have to freak out. Because I know that those of us who are mature, those who are going on, those who are, have the Holy Spirit of God, those who want to please Christ, this is going to become plain to you. What we're saying is this, that the Christian is one who lives his life with a certain agreement amongst God's people and within God's word. And so from this, we can infer a couple of things. Number one, our Christian practice is not subjective, but objective. Meaning, Christian discipleship and the working out of our salvation and following Jesus, it's not a eh, to each his own kind of thing. There is a rule of faith. For someone to say, I think Christian maturity just means basically sinless perfection. I no longer sin because I've obtained a certain thing and I'm in Christ. Or, I think Christianity is just about loving others and accepting everyone for who they are. I mean, who am I to say otherwise? Or, I think Christianity is ultimately, in its most purest form, when it's just me and Jesus. I don't really need the church. I just follow Jesus. The problem with all three of those statements is that they're not at all in line with the teaching of God's word. The scriptures are our pattern for life and final authority on how we are to think and how we are to live. Biblical love is defined by biblical truth. Discipleship is worked out in the context of God's church. God himself has revealed that to us in his own word. That's why we confess gladly that the Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard for all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Church, if we are going to navigate this life already belonging to Christ, but not yet conformed to his image, we must walk with a certain agreement. A standard that charts our course, that directs our steps, that brings wisdom to our folly. This means that the Christian life, the Christian race, is not just running in any haphazard direction or any particular way, but we run according to the mind of God, which has been revealed to us in the word of God. Have you given time to meditate on Psalm 19? 
I'd exhort you this afternoon to go back and read Psalm 19. After speaking of the general revelation that's given to us in creation, the psalmist then turns towards the particular special revelation given to us in the Word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. What is upon the throne of final authority in your life? For the Christian, it is the Word of God. That authority transcends our feelings. It transcends our experiences. It transcends the language and terms that we pick up in worldly wisdom. It transcends even that gut feeling that we might have that may be right and may be wrong. That all of that that is subjective is brought underneath the objective authority of Christ that's revealed in his word. Because the Christian life has a certain agreement. God's word expressed amongst God's people. So, beloved, we are already Christ's. But we have not yet obtained him. We live amidst the certainty, Christian, of final glorification. But we're still working out our ongoing sanctification. We are already, Christian, chosen by God, saved by His sovereign grace, and yet we're not fully conformed to the image of the Son. And so we press on. And so we keep going. We go on in making progress in our walk as we walk in the light, advancing in faith and hope and love. So church, can I exhort you to keep the clear aim before you? To be astounded by the grace of God that he would call you to himself. Keep going. Having your thinking shaped and governed by God's word, holding true to what you have attained, as Paul says. And so as we come to the end of one year and we anticipate the next, press on. May God continue to enable us to press onward as those who are just emphatically overjoyed to know that Christ Jesus has made us his own. Regardless of whatever comes and whether we are given 365 days or three minutes from now, that we are those who are overjoyed the Christ Jesus has made us his own. And so with the measure of days that he gives us, we are those who say, I press on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Father, we do pray that you 
would cause this overwhelming work of joyous response to bear great fruit in our lives. That we would hear and receive the good news of the gospel in Christ, and upon hearing and receiving that good news, Lord, would you continue the good work that you've begun in us? Would you continue to conform us to the image of your Son? And Father, would you continue to rouse us and to stir us, to labor with all the grace that is available to us, that we might know Christ and make him known. Father, we pray that you would ground us deep with gospel roots that we might grow much fruit upward towards the praise of your glorious grace, we pray. Amen.